and the nasal pharyngeal swab or nasal uh, swab is, I would say at the moment, the gold standard for collection. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the October 21st update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window. Today's learning objectives are discuss limitations of current testing and describe the difference between molecular tests and antigen tests. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, clinical director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Take it away, Dr. Allwater. Thank you, Faith. I, I thought for today we might focus uh, for a few minutes on just testing for the novel coronavirus. I find that there are a number of misconceptions or, or, or people that don't quite grasp some of the limitations of testing. And as always, uh, even though some are very good, you still have to approach every patient and every question in a clinical context because no test is completely 100% bulletproof. And even tests that are remarkable, like the HIV test, uh, still have to be understood in their context. So of course, I'd want to start off with uh, a comprehensive assessment of uh, the testing that's been done and, and so people can have a firm grasp of the numbers that are available. And unfortunately, that really doesn't yet exist, although we're making some headway in a variety of aspects. But unfortunately, there, there still isn't what I would say the kind of data that you can really point to like we do for either measles or HIV or other viruses to really give uh, clinicians and patients an idea of what can be accomplished. And a lot of this has to do at least in the United States with the Food and Drug Administration, who has used an emergency use authorization, which is really a conditional approval because of the public health emergency. And because of that, many tests that have been authorized are analytically valid, which means yes, they, they work sufficiently, but it's based on a very small sample size. And the positive and controls tend to be from patients that are uh, symptomatic, often with very high viral loads. So they're not the ones that might be more at the shoulders or negative uh, large populations. So you really get a sense of how a test might behave in a uh, larger uh, clinically valid population. 
So of course, once you hear FDA approval of a test, I think then we'll have a, a much better sense. And, and there's really no gold standard or benchmark. It's fairly clear that for this virus, it will be a PCR test, a molecular test for viral RNA, but which, which platform and so on is not exactly clear. The FDA has just uh, recently put together a panel so that uh, PCR sensitivity and specificity can be assessed. So I think we're beginning to get to better standardizations but uh, CT values, which is shorthand for cycle threshold values, uh, do vary greatly amongst platforms. And, and therefore, uh, some people that are advocating to have you know, the CT values published along with their patient results, we still don't have a, a real a quantitative value that I think we can really trust. So that's something that we probably are still waiting for. But just for reminders, if you look at how this coronavirus behaves, at least for people that develop symptoms, it appears that virus can be detected as early as six days, but more commonly two to four days before symptom onset. And the viral carriage is really quite high, even in that pre-symptomatic phase and in the first week after the onset of symptoms before the immune system kicks in, and starts clearing virus. Now, in this early phase here, and even in the pre-symptomatic phase, almost any test will be helpful except for antibody testing. It doesn't matter if you're using molecular tests, even antigen tests probably have adequate performance in this test. But if you're down here or over here, or if you're looking at curves for asymptomatic people, they often have less virus and it's maybe a more difficult population to detect infection, certainly for antigen. So I'd like to go through the three main tests that are approved and, in B and under some consideration of use. Of course, the, the workhorse has been polymerase chain reaction, which is looking for viral RNA, and the nasal pharyngeal swab or nasal uh, swab is, I would say at the moment, the gold standard for collection. Uh, the RNA is extracted and put through uh, uh, some specific primers, uh, often multiple uh, ones to detect different parts of the virus, and therefore you get the real sensitivity and, and positives that have to be within a certain cycle threshold. Typically, most platforms say that if you're doing more than 40 cycles, then you start getting into problems with false positivity. Uh, we also know, although we can't really compare different tests and platforms, you know, if your cycle threshold is in the upper 30s, uh, the amount of virus there probably does not mean that it's viable virus or infectious. So what's the false negative range? Well, so here it's not analytical, but really one, when you're testing people, and also are they doing the samples adequately? Are they really uh, taking the swab back into the posterior nasopharyngeal space? And the false negative rates can range from 2 to 37%, which is why you need to have a clinical assessment. So if you are have an intermediate or high clinical suspicion, you should probably gather a second test of that PCR. And even at our Hopkins experience, about 8% of tests that are initially negative will be a positive on second testing.
Pooled testing has been discussed as a way to perhaps decrease the costs and uh, have improved access. So this is where you might take 10 or 20 swabs, have them all uh, tested at once in one PCR analysis. And it, it is effective, but if you have a positive in there, then you have to run each of the swabs individually. Uh, th this is a most useful if rates are very low in the community. So you're doing widespread testing. There's not a lot of virus. And certainly that doesn't apply to most places in the United States. Some people are also using it in congregate living situations uh, to just know when all of a sudden restrictions should be employed straight away. Now, a lot of uh, people have wondered about uh, saliva-based testing. And this is, of course, uh, advantageous because people can spit pretty easily into collection tubes. Uh, it's easier. They can drop samples off, or perhaps they, the emerging molecular tests can be done at the point of care. But unfortunately, there's really mixed data on this. Uh, a number of studies have published, and perhaps it's, it's not quite as good as a nasopharyngeal swab, although a recent paper in the New England Journal by Wiley in September suggested it was a little better. So, you know, the studies are, are going to be a little bit variable in that regard. It's still not a widely available uh, route of testing by most of the commercial labs, but it is a, perhaps a way to figure out who's most contagious, who needs to be isolated quickly. And so, I think it is something that will become more widespread. Perhaps the testing methodology that I find people have most questions or confusion about are the antigen tests. And, and many of you are probably familiar with these. Uh, uh, for example, some are much like the tests that come out of the drugstore for pregnancy, where uh, you're looking for an antigen and you have a control antibody test and also uh, an antibody specific against this antigen, and you're looking for that signal. Uh, so you have, can yield both positive or negative results. These tend to need very high levels of antigen to trigger. So that's why typically you're going to have it most effective in either before the onset of symptoms or just soon thereafter. There are four currently approved tests. I've shown a few of them here. Some need uh, machines to read. Uh, the antigens, and then the antigen card by Abbott for uh, the Binax Now test has been advertised as inexpensive here, um, and uh, those have been mass distributed. The one of the problems with the test is just purely logistical. The U.S. government has bought up most of these, so even if you wanted to procure them, you can't at the moment. They're being sent since the summertime, some to nursing homes, congregate living uh, situations, and so on. Now, if you look at the antigen test where the, the PCR is the gold standard, here you are detecting a protein, that's the antigens. Uh, you're still using a nasal swab, but the sensitivity is moderate, just the same as for influenza where you have rapid influenza diagnostic tests. It's just not going to perform as well. Uh, although the specificity is fairly good. Now, um, of the four antigen tests in the United States, there's still no published data. There is some uh, data from Europe and Asia that suggests the sensitivity can be anywhere from 30 to 97%, but the specificity is 90 to 100%. Now, some people have argued, oh, you know, it, it doesn't pick up as much, but you can 
repeat the tests because they're so inexpensive, perhaps do them daily or two or three times a week. But then of course, in a low prevalence population, you're gonna pick up more false positives. And of course, there've been instances where we think these have triggered false positives, such as uh, certain uh, politicians in Ohio, for example, or has, on the other hand, has missed cases such as with sports teams that have been employing this strategy. Now, it is easy to use, it's rapid. Um, it, it tells you who might be contagious now, and I think that's highly useful. Uh, there. So it doesn't replace it. And one of the key things I'll emphasize is if you're using it and someone's symptomatic, a negative test does not get you assurance that you don't have the coronavirus and you'll still need a molecular test. Now, uh, can the role of these antigen tests be widened? As I mentioned, the tests are hard to obtain, but importantly, how the FDA has authorized them is only for symptomatic patients because that's really when people will have enough of the antigen. And because of its lower sensitivity, uh, it's not clear that it can be used for asymptomatic screening, even though many people are using it in that particular uh, circumstance. Uh, there's a recent email by Reynolds Salerno at the CDC that I have here that just mentioned that this is under investigation. They are looking to see if these antigen tests uh, are useful. And I think the key is not only to pick up people that may not know it, and this would be very important because many people don't know they have the coronavirus. That's one of the reasons it's so successful is that people who are asymptomatic still spread it. But especially if you have people in the workplace and essential workers, people being pulled out because of false positives would also be detrimental. So I think we, we still need to understand this a bit further. We'll wait and see. The last have been uh, antibody tests, and I think antibody tests, uh, there's so many of them, but almost all of them do target the spike protein. The better tests, which are not widely available, not only target the spike protein, but also the receptor binding domain. And so if you start adding different targets, you're going to get better specificity. But if you're just looking at the spike protein, many tests um, cross-react. And so at the moment, uh, there's really no tests that you can really a lot rely upon as a screen for an individual to say that they have protective immunity, because I think that's what people want to know. Certainly, neutralizing antibodies are probably can be counted on, although uh, still a true protective correlative immunity is not very well understood for this virus. So for the moment, there's really no test that can truly address in a comprehensive way commercially that someone's had uh, the coronavirus or has protective immunity. So it's being used in limited circumstances for epidemiology, uh, perhaps in settings where uh, molecular tests might be negative, but you have a high suspicion of illness after a week or two of an illness, or uh, it's also very important for detecting antibodies that might suggest someone has had SARS-CoV-2 in a confirmed case and be a good plasma donor for people um, that may wish to donate so that convalescent plasma can be used for people who are ill. So I do think um, a couple of notable uh, tests, such as the one that Florian Kramer has at Mount Sinai in New York, where he uses two EIA 
targets, not only the spike protein, but the receptor binding donut main is probably how this will evolve to get better specificity of these tests to help get at what people want. And of course, we'll need a much more clinical validation on the correlates of protective immunity, and hopefully that uh, will come over time. So a few uh, testing questions. If I'm a close contact and I test negative, can I get out of jail? And the answer is no. Even if you use a molecular test, because of the incubation period that can be variable, you really should continue to, to quarantine. Some have uh, looked at day seven, eight testing by molecular, and if that's negative, certainly that lowers the risk, and, and some essential workers have returned with PPE in those circumstances and so on. But as a general rule, testing is not really uh, advocated uh, widely to help shorten the quarantine period. I'll mention it is helpful for contact tracing because if someone uh, is a close contact and they turn positive, of course, that's very helpful to know. But in terms of uh, getting out of quarantine, that's how that question was phrased. I've had COVID-19, so I don't need to be tested. And, and you know, that's probably uh, true at some point, but we still don't know for sure the duration of protective immunity uh, for people. And clearly some people don't mount antibodies, but that's not the whole answer. There's also T cell responses and so on. And then many states, Hawaii, uh, are requiring testing for entry without quarantine. Massachusetts is another, and they're not accepting prior COVID-19. And I think that's because we know that some people can still carry the virus. We don't know if it can be shed, but they could reacquire it, not be ill, but potentially spread the virus to others. So their, their own immunity protects them. Uh, and there have also been cases of reinfection. So for the moment, people that would argue they've already had it, they're certainly in, in better state uh, straits than most of us who haven't had it, but uh, I don't think you can get out of testing in certain uh, situations. Now, Faith, I think we have some questions. Thank you very much. We will now move to the listener Q&A. Our first learner question is, please discuss mortality rates overall and how they compare to mortality rates from two or three months ago. Generally, uh, from what I've seen in both Europe and the United States, the hospitalizations, when you look at people who are hospitalized, it seems to be a, a higher percentage of younger people. And because age is clearly the most important risk factor for death due to this virus, uh, you're seeing some lessened mortality rates. Now, still, uh, there's healthy percentages of people over 65 hospitalized both in Europe and the United States. And uh, we're beginning to see upticks in hospitalizations in a large number of states now. But I think a lot of the current cases are people in the 20 uh, to 30 year old range that are less at risk for severe illness, who may not uh, be as careful. Uh, and certainly the pandemic fatigue where all of a sudden there are a lot of cases, people are much better and then the case rates come down, people relax. And we've seen that with the waves uh, in the summer and then the decline, and now we're seeing it come up again, whether that's because of people loosening restrictions, going back to school and enhanced transmission remains uh, to be sorted. 
Thank you. The next question is, although rapid tests are not as sensitive as PCR, if they pick up disease in asymptomatic people with the virus, wouldn't that be helpful for schools to screen students with? Well, I think that uh, speaks a little bit to what I spoke about antigen testing. Uh, you may pick up, if you're doing frequent testing, you could have a lot of false positives. So I think we still really need to study how well the rapid tests are. Yes, if they can pull out infectious people capable of spreading to others, that would be fantastic. But if you're also pulling out a lot of people uh, who don't have the virus on subsequent screening by molecular methods, then uh, th this might be counterproductive. So I, I think it's too soon to tell. Obviously, some people are already using this, but already handling with the false positive rates, uh, as well as the uh, uh, true positives. Okay, and our final question, for people who have been reinfected, do we know if the symptoms and clinical course are worse than the second time around or about the same? Well, uh, I don't think we know the answer, Faith, to that question because there's only been a handful of cases of well-documented reinfections. So we don't know enough. I, I think generally one hopes that because there's already been immune responses, that people would not be as ill. But on the other hand, uh, there is some concern that people may have some primed immune responses that could make it worse, or people that are reinfected may lack uh, certain immune responses, so they just don't do as well because they're not making the right uh, antibodies and so on and so forth. So I, I, it's a wonderful question, but I think we're gonna have to wait till we have much more experience to get a sense. Uh, but I think it's probably going to be several, uh, there's not going to be a uniform approach to this. And some people may do a bit worse, uh, although my hopes are most people will do better. Okay, great. Thank you again, Dr. Alwater. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Dr. Alwater, thanks again for your time. Sure, Faith. I hope those testing uh, discussions uh, were helpful for you and your practices. Uh, and again, I, I hope, especially as we're seeing more and more cases, please wear masks, advise your patients to wear masks, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, see um, a downturn in cases rather than an upturn as we head into the fall.